The Bible reading this morning is Luke chapter 2, verse 22 to 38. Jesus presented at the temple. Yeah, please. (laughs) And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the word, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace, according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all the peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles, and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him, and Simeon blessed them, blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshipping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Morning, everyone. Merry Christmas. I know I'm a week late, but I wasn't here last week, so I didn't get to say it to you guys. I was uh, knocked out flat on my back for several days by a sickness that thankfully is much better now. And I just want to say a big thanks to Les and everyone else who stepped up to cover for me when I was not able to be here last week. Um, but yeah, it's, we're just reaching the end of the Christmas season. These past few weeks, we've been looking at Christmas and how Jesus' birth brings so much good stuff to our world, hope and joy and love and peace. And and yet, I have a guess about how Christmas has impacted so many of our real lives. I have some questions. You don't have to you don't have to answer, you don't have to put your head up or, or your hand up. You can just think to yourself, because these might be embarrassing, I don't know. But just think to yourself. Is there anyone here who had conflict at work in the time leading up to Christmas? Now we had this wonderful season of hope and love and joy and peace. And and for anyone who had conflict at work leading up to Christmas, did it magically go away because of Christmas? Christmas? 
I doubt it. Maybe you got a break for a week because you were on holiday or they were on holiday. But when you get back, that conflict is going to be right there waiting to continue. Is there anyone here who had some family conflict leading up to Christmas? Again, you don't have to answer publicly. (laughs) But this season of hope and joy and love and peace, did it magically fix your family conflict? Like if you and your spouse had been fighting for months or years leading up to Christmas, did you just wake up on Christmas morning and be like, you know what, honey? It's Christmas. Let's just put our fighting behind us and be nice to each other from now on. No, of course not. And maybe if your, if your conflict was with extended family, the Christmas season actually made it worse because you can't avoid them when it's Christmas and you have these big family gatherings and then you have to interact with each other. It's horrible. It makes it worse, right? Like Christmas is supposed to make everything better and it's just difficult. Sometimes it makes things worse. It's the season of hope and joy and love and peace and then it passes and the world doesn't really seem that much more peaceful or hopeful or loving or joyful. The war in Ukraine didn't end. The fighting in Israel didn't stop because of it. Does it really make a difference? You know, we have this whole period of time leading up to Christmas, the excitement, the waiting, and then we wake up one day and Christmas is over. And then a week later, it's New Year's, and we tell ourselves all the things that we're going to do differently from now on, once the calendar turns, and two weeks later, we've forgotten what our resolutions were and given up on them completely. What do we do when Christmas is past? New Year's is right around the corner, about to be forgotten as well. And we just feel a little bit lost in all the chaos and conflict and confusion of life in our world. It's a real question that all of us have to deal with. And I don't know if you ever realized this, but it's also a question that Mary and Joseph had to, real, had to deal with. What does life look like after Christmas? And so today we're going to look at what life was like for Mary and Joseph after Christmas and see if we can learn anything for our lives today about how to live in life after Christmas. And what we're going to see is that Jesus comes to bring peace, but does it in unexpected ways. Jesus comes to bring peace, but does it in unexpected ways. And we'll see that life goes on. We'll look at blessings that sting and talk about how to recalibrate expectations. But first, let's pray. Father, we thank you for Christmas, for the amazing gift of of a God becoming human, entering into our world to bring healing to our pain and peace to our conflict. And God, we recognize that so much it so much of the time that feels too good to be true. It feels like a a promise that maybe we're still waiting for. But God, I pray that today you would give us perspective to see how you're at work, even in the midst of the mess of our lives, and that you would give us hope and joy for the coming year as we look at how you work in our world. In Jesus' name, amen. So the first thing we see is that life goes on. We have some parents here. We have some non-parents here as well. If you're a non-parent, you're just going to have to take my word for this. Hopefully someday you can experience this yourself. But if you're a parent, think about this. What is it like having your first baby? What's it like having your first baby? 
For me, it was, a, it was a strange feeling. Anyone else feel like it's a strange feeling? Like you're filled with this love that you didn't know that you were capable of. And there's this now this helpless human being who's completely dependent on you. And for a few days, life just feels like it stops and slows down as you try and adjust to taking care of this person and figuring out how to keep them alive. And there's all these new things that have just been added into your routine, like feedings and diaper changes and nap times. But then, after a few days, life goes on. Right? You have to get back to your normal routines. You go back to work. The, the cleaning and laundry that have been piling up as you adjust to the new baby all of a sudden need to be caught up on. You need to go back and get groceries. All the things that you had to do before the baby arrived, you just keep doing. But on top of those things, there's some new things like feedings and diaper changes and nap times. And you're doing all of this on less sleep than you thought was humanly possible. And there's some logistical work that goes with it. So our boys were born in Hong Kong. So when they were born, I had to go to the births and deaths registry to get their birth certificate so that the government knows that there's a new human being in my family. And then because I'm a U.S. citizen, I had to take that birth certificate to the U.S. consulate and get them their U.S. citizenship and get them their passports so that they can travel. And, and there's just stuff that goes into having a new kid. And if you're a parent, your experience might have been a little bit different than mine. But I think pretty much that's, that's pretty standard for new parents. Things get crazy for a while. You adjust the new routine. There's some paperwork that goes with this new human being's life. And you eventually just settle into the routine and life goes on. And in many ways, Mary and Joseph's experience of having baby Jesus wasn't that different from our experience as first-time parents, right? Like the birth itself was pretty wild, right? Like giving birth in a stable and then having all these angels show up and tell the shepherds like, go check it out. And then the shepherds coming and being like, let's see your baby as we're surrounded by animals from the farm. That's weird. But after that night, it got back to normal. They, they adjusted to the new routine. You have to feed your baby and change the baby's diaper and figure out how to keep paying the bills as you have a new mouth to feed. And, and just as we have logistical stuff that we have to do after we have a new baby, they did too. Only instead of going to the births and re deaths registry in Kowloon, they had to go to the temple in Jerusalem. And there were a couple reasons they had to do this. First, in the Old Testament Israelite religion, they had something called clean and unclean. If you were clean, then you could go to the temple. You could worship God. You were good. If you were unclean, it didn't necessarily mean that you were sinful or had done anything wrong, but there was something that made you unclean. And until you became clean, you couldn't go to the temple. You couldn't worship God. And a lot of the things of uncleanness had to do with like, death, like touching a dead person, or fluids coming out of your body, like if you're bleeding, or if you have some infection that's oozing, that would make you unclean. It's not, again, not that you've done anything wrong, just that until that is clean, you cannot come and worship God. And so the way that it worked is when you had a baby, you were unclean for several weeks. And after those several weeks had passed, you came to the temple and you made a sacrifice and then you were clean again. You could come back and worship with the people of God again. And so after they give birth to Jesus, they have to go to the temple 
so that Mary can make this sacrifice and she can be clean again. So that's one reason they had to do this trip. The second reason is that if you go way back in the Old Testament, Israel, they're slaves in Egypt. God comes and rescues them. It's the whole story of Moses going to Pharaoh, let my people go, and then the 10 plagues. And the 10th plague that God sends on the land of Egypt to get them to finally release their Israelite slaves so that the Israelites can be free is that he kills the firstborn son of every family in Egypt. But for the Israelites, he tells them to kill a lamb instead, paint the lamb around the door to their house. And when the angel comes by, he'll see the blood of the lamb. He'll know that the lamb was killed instead of the son and he'll pass over that house. That's why they call the the celebration of that day Passover. And after God did this, he made it a rule in Israel that because I rescued you by killing the firstborn sons of the Egyptians, every firstborn son in Israel belongs to me. It's a reminder for you of the way that I rescued you. And so Mary and Joseph had to bring Jesus to the temple to present him before God as a way of remembering God rescued our people from slavery in Egypt. God saved our firstborn sons when he killed all the Egyptian ones. And so it's a celebration of God's faithfulness in the past and the way that he rescues and saves his people. And so between those two things, the sacrifice for Mary and presenting Jesus, they have to take this trip to Jerusalem to the temple. And again, like I said, from from like the day after Jesus was born until this day, from everything we know, their lives have been pretty normal. It's just adjusting to a new child like any family would do. And even this trip to Jerusalem for someone in their world was a very standard thing to do. Yes, God has been born into their family as their firstborn son, but their troubles and concerns of life, they haven't gone away because of that. Actually, we see that maybe things have gotten worse for them. When they go to make this sacrifice, the Old Testament law said the normal sacrifice that people make after they give birth is a lamb. But if you're poor and you can't afford a lamb, then instead you can give two birds. And we we see right here in the passage, when Mary and Joseph go to make their sacrifice, they give the two birds. Jesus was born into a poor family. God is their son, but they're still poor. Which if you hear someone saying today, like God just wants you to be healthy and wealthy and millionaires, this is probably a pretty good indicator that there's something wrong with that message. God was born into a family of poverty and his birth didn't instantly make them rich. They were still poor, maybe even worse off because now they're still poor, but they have an extra mouth to feed. This baby He comes to bring peace on earth, but his parents still feel anxiety when they look at their bank accounts. On many levels, it it might seem like Christmas hasn't changed a thing for them. And even the things that it did change aren't necessarily things that changed for the better. And yet, as we look at today's passage, we see on another level that Christmas has changed everything for them. So let's look at this blessing that stings. 
So they bring their son up to the temple. And while they're there, they meet a man named Simeon. He is about as godly of a man as you would find in Israel in those days. And Simeon has gotten this special promise from God. Somehow God spoke to Simeon and he said, this rescuer that I've been promising to send my people for thousands of years, he's coming soon and you will see him in your lifetime. So Simeon knows God's rescuer is coming. I'm going to meet him someday. I don't know when, but all of a sudden on this day, as Jesus' family comes into the temple, Simeon shows up there at the same time and he sees Jesus and he picks him up and he starts praising God. It probably wasn't like this, but I imagine it like the, the opening scene of The Lion King where they hold up baby Simba. It probably wasn't like that, but he, he picks up their baby. I don't know. I wouldn't feel really comfortable with a stranger just picking up my baby, but it doesn't say how Mary and Joseph felt about it. He grabs their baby, picks him up and praises God. And as soon as he starts speaking, it's clear that he sees baby Jesus as a blessing. He blesses God for the gift of baby Jesus. He says, now I can die in peace because my eyes have seen God's salvation. He speaks words of prophecy over the life of Jesus. And Jesus' parents, I mean, think about how you would respond if you're in their shoes. You, you bring your kid into, say, the births and deaths registry, because that's what we do in our world. And while you're there, some guy comes over, picks up your child, says, praise God. This is the rescuer who's going to transform the world and save our people. Be a bit shocking, right? A bit unexpected. And says his parents were amazed. They didn't quite know what to do with themselves. It's a bit shocking that this would happen right now. Life just seemed like it was getting back to normal. And this is anything but normal. This is incredible. This godly man speaking through the power of the Holy Spirit is saying the exact same things about our son that the angels told us before. Our son is going to be incredible. Our son is going to do great things. He's going to be a savior. This is amazing. But then Simeon has one more thing to say. Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed and a sword will pierce through your own soul also so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Jesus is going to do amazing things. He's going to be a savior who brings peace and yet his work will also bring great pain. Not everyone is going to benefit from what he does. In fact, he says some people will suffer because of the work of Jesus. Some highly exalted people are going to be brought down. They're going to fall from their lofty positions because of what Jesus has come to do. And on one level, Mary, this baby's mom, she's going to suffer more than anyone else. This baby comes to bring salvation and peace and rescue, and yet his own mother is going to have a sword through her soul. How is that possible? This is, it says that this is a blessing. Right there in verse uh, 
34, Simeon blessed them and said, dot, 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 a sword will pierce through your own soul also. It doesn't sound like a blessing to me. I don't know about you. When I think of blessings, I think of things that make me feel happy and comfortable and not swords going through my soul. How can this be part of the blessing? Well, think about how this sword piercing her soul is going to happen. As her son grows up, he's going to start making decisions that prioritize God's plan for his life over his mom's plan for his life. Rather than stay home and work in the family business and get married and give his parents grandkids like you'd be expected to do in that world, he's going to leave home. He's going to travel the country teaching people about God. He's going to stay single. He's never going to give them grandkids. As he leaves and starts traveling, other people outside the family are going to start getting more and more of his time. And his mom might start to feel neglected. And then as he becomes more popular, there's going to be opposition to him. People are going to reject him. And his mom, Mary, she's going to have to watch. Completely helpless. As powerful people of her society slander and plot against her son. And then their plan will succeed. And they'll finally bring him down. And she's going to have to stand there helpless, watching as her son is executed in the most brutally violent way their world knew how to kill someone. A sword will pierce through Mary's own soul. The work of salvation that her son is going to do will break her heart. But it says it's a blessing. It's a great work of salvation. And I think for people living in our world who have heard this story before, it can be easy to think like, well, of course Jesus dies on the cross. That's, that's the story. That's how the story goes. But as far as we know, this might be the first time Mary's ever realized this. Right? The angel shows up at her house and says, you're going to have a baby. He's going to be great. He's going to be called the son of the most high. This is wonderful, amazing stuff. And then we hear about a prayer that Mary does in response to that, where she praises God and says, he who is mighty has done great things for me. And she praises God for doing these amazing things. And then Jesus is born and the angels show up and they tell the shepherds that this baby is going to bring great joy for all the people. And now... Here's this man saying that this great, powerful salvation is going to happen in a way that breaks my heart. How is this possible? For us, we, we hear about the promise of Christmas and the hope and joy and peace and love, and then Christmas passes and there's still all this conflict and nothing seems better. How is this possible? See, there's a reality at work in Mary's story that you and I need to recognize because it's at work in our world as well. The good news of Christmas is not good news that will immediately make everything perfect and then leave it perfect forever. That's not how Christmas works. That's not how God works. 
the good news of God's salvation in Jesus. Isn't that everyone who believes in Jesus gets to avoid all the troubles of life in this world and live healthy and prosperous lives until God takes us away to heaven? That's not how the good news works. The good news of Jesus is good news that will cause pain in the process of making things better. Things will often get worse before they get better. That's how God works. It's how he works over and over in the Bible, and it's how he works in our world today. So this past week, when Christmas was passed, and it felt like your reality didn't match those promises that you've been hearing about Christmas, this might be part of the reason why. That progress towards joy in God's kingdom, it's shaped like a J. It goes downward into death before it comes up into resurrection and new life. That's the pattern of the life of Jesus. He lives, he dies, and then he's resurrected. And we see throughout the rest of the New Testament that it's the normal pattern of the Christian life. We go down into death before we come up into resurrection. So when you look around at your world this week and things seem totally lost, Things seem totally out of control. They're they're far from lining up with those promises of Christmas that you heard. Hopefully, this is good news for you. The chaos of our world isn't necessarily a a sign that things have gone wrong, that things are out of control, that that everything's going to end up terribly. It could actually be God's way of inviting you more deeply into this work of salvation that he's still doing in your life and in the world. But again, this doesn't often feel like good news, which is why we need to recalibrate our expectations. Recalibrate our expectations. You see, there's a tendency in our society to define success as moving up and to the right. See, you can think of it like in your MPF account. As time goes by, that's the chart moving to the right, you want the amount of money in it to go up. As things move to the right, you want it to go up. If your MPF account has more money in it as time goes by, that's a good thing, right? That's how we define success in our culture. If time keeps passing and it's moving to the right, but instead of going up, it's going down, then we panic or we get angry and we blame people for what's gone wrong. Never ourselves. It's never our fault that the account's losing money. Maybe it's the fund manager. Maybe it's the government. Maybe it's the companies in in the portfolio. Whoever it is, it's never us. It's someone's fault, and we need someone to be angry at because it's not going up. It's no longer successful. And it's not just with money that we feel this way. It's with every part of life, right? With our careers, as time goes by, as the chart moves to the right, we want to be getting promoted and getting raises and doing better and better. And if we reach a career point where we're just sort of stagnant for a while, no promotions are coming, no new responsibilities, no pay raise, we feel like something's gone wrong feel like a bit of a failure. If we lose our job, we're moving downward pretty fast. We feel like we're no longer being successful. With our kids, we we want to see them becoming more obedient and more independent and more able to make good decisions every day, right? If, If you have a young kid and you're trying to teach them to obey you in something and one day they do it happily and the next day you tell them to do it and they're like, no! That's not success, is it? 
because your chart is no longer moving up into the right. Yesterday, we were moving up into the right, and today we just crashed off the edge of a cliff. It feels like a failure. Either our child's failure to obey, or maybe our failure as parents. And it's not just adults that do this, students. You want to move up into the right. As time goes by, you want your grades to be getting better. You want to have a clearer understanding of where you fit in socially and, and who your friends are and your ability to connect with them. Like, students, have you ever had this experience where you're in a class and, and for some reason, everything in this class has just clicked with you? Like, it makes perfect sense. You understand it. You, it. It feels like such an easy class for you. And you're like, this is an easy A. This is awesome. And then all of a sudden, you start a new unit. And this new unit just feels like a totally different class, and you're completely lost. And you're like, uh-oh, this is trouble. I'm no longer moving up into the right in this class. My, my grades are going to take a hit during this unit. This is trouble. You feel like a bit of a failure. Our society defines success as moving up and to the right. As times go by, things get better. And this may be more extreme in our day than it was in the past, but I think that's sort of how humanity has always operated. And this J-shaped nature of God's work, it's a wake-up call to our definition of success. See, if we're going to be successful in God's eyes, we need to recalibrate our idea of what it means to be successful. Because as Simeon's prophecy shows us, progress and advancement and success in God's kingdom, it's not about just a constant move up and to the right. It's about aligning our hearts with God's heart. Did you catch what Simeon said right around that line about Mary's heart being broken? He said, This child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and through him thoughts from many hearts will be revealed. See, if Jesus is coming to bring this great salvation that brings peace, why would it make some people fall? Well, this chart is the answer. We have our picture of what success should look like. And his picture isn't just different than it, it's upside down from it. When we see someone coming and, and telling us, you know, progress might not be this direction, it might be this direction for a season. That sounds foolish. We oppose that. We can't stand that. We feel like we know better than that. And if that's our posture and our attitude towards him, then this work that he does to bring us peace is going to cause us to fall. It was true in his day. It's true in our day. Right? So many people in our world refuse to trust Jesus because we think we know better than him what the best way to live is. Right? We want the freedom and authority to make our own decisions because when we look at God's chart for success, it looks so foolish. Why would I ever do that when I can keep moving up and to the right? I once was talking with someone and they told me, you know, when it comes to decisions in life, I would rather make my own decision and get it wrong and make a mess of things than do it God's way and get it right just because I'm obeying God. Right? His ways seem foolish. We want the freedom and authority to do it our way. And so we oppose him. 
because we think that's going to lead to greater success. God's path to success, it's not just different from the world's path. It's opposite. It's upside down from the world's path. A simple glance at that chart shows you that God's path is foolishness. And yet, opposing him and refusing to do his will, Simeon says it's going to lead us to falling. One day, the thoughts of our hearts will be revealed. And on that day, if those thoughts oppose God, if they stand with a posture of scoffing and mockery towards him rather than worshiping and loving him, the result of Jesus' work for us won't be blessing and salvation. It will be our downfall. In order to receive the blessing and salvation that Jesus brings, we need to align our hearts with God's heart. We need to align our definition of success with God's picture of success, not the world's. And when you look at God's heart and ask, what does it look like to align our heart with his? The one time in the Gospels where Jesus speaks directly about his heart, do you know what he says? He says, I am gentle and lowly at heart. Gentle and lowly are the words that God chooses to describe his own heart. It's a heart that humbled itself to become one of us on Christmas. Like, when was the last time that you just stopped and reflected on that fact? Like, the God who spoke the universe into being looked down at humanity. He didn't need to have anything to do with us. He could have just left us to make a mess of the world and destroy ourselves, but he didn't. He stepped down into our world and became one of us. Like, if you just set a timer for five minutes this week and think about that fact, that the God who created the world became a human being so that he could save us and rescue us. It's mind-blowing. He's so gentle and lowly. But it doesn't stop there. God's heart is a heart that humbled itself to death on the cross. See, this, this J-curve, this, this J-shaped path of success, it's not just that God tells us to follow that and then stands back and, and says, have fun. He actually models this path for us in his life. When, when Jesus arrives on the scene, people expect him to be a great military leader. They expect him to raise up an army. Israel was ruled by Rome at that time. They expect him to raise up an army, kick out the Romans, set up a kingdom on the earth, God's kingdom, the nation of Israel, and rule with an iron fist from that throne to make everything right on the earth. But when we look at what Jesus actually did, the Bible tells us, yes, one day Jesus will physically bring God's kingdom to the earth. But before that happens, he gets killed by the very Romans that people thought he was there to overthrow. Yes, he will bring the salvation and peace to Mary, but not until his work has caused a sword to pierce her soul. Not until her heart has been broken by what he's doing. Yes, Christmas is good news for you and the struggles that you face this week, but not because it gives us the ability to just skip over all the pain in life and bypass it. No, it's good news because God has come to be with us in the midst of all the pain and the mess. And he's not just with us on Christmas Day. He stays with us afterwards for the everyday to lead us and to guide us and to walk alongside us. 
and the paths that he leads us on, they often move downward before they start to rise again. But we can follow him on these paths because they're the paths that Jesus walked for us. They're the path to true success. And for those who stick with Jesus through the pain, through the suffering, through the heartbreak, there's resurrection on the other side. See, yes, Jesus is killed, but he doesn't stay dead. God raises him back to victorious life. Yes, Mary's heart gets broken, but it doesn't stay broken forever. A few days after seeing her son executed, she sees him alive again. She finally fully understands the true nature of what he came to do. Actually, even here in this passage, when Simeon talks about the fall and rising of many in Israel, that word rising shows up many, many times in the New Testament, and almost every time it's translated as resurrection. See, it's it's not just that the arrival of Jesus brings some people up, some people down. It's that the arrival of Jesus takes the people who are lofty and exalted and knocks them down, but it takes people who are dead and makes them alive again. Life with Jesus, it's a life that involves lots of suffering, lots of pain, lots of trials, but it always ends in resurrection. So how do we learn to live with these recalibrated expectations this week? Well, a few thoughts. One, embrace the J. Embrace the J. See, when we come into times of trials and suffering and hardships, our natural instinct as human beings is to find an eject button that we can hit. My marriage is hard, eject, divorce. My job has become stagnant and stale and I'm not enjoying the things I do anymore, eject, quit. I have a friend who's just becoming more difficult to be around and it's sort of not as fun to hang out with them anymore, eject, stop answering their messages, stop hanging out with them. But if the path God uses to help us grow, to bring us to a place of resurrection, if it's shaped like a J, if it moves down into death before it moves up into resurrection, then ejecting prematurely from that J, it cuts us off from the opportunity to experience that resurrection. Avoiding the suffering causes us to avoid the blessing that comes afterwards. So when you feel a start of a J coming on, a time of trial or suffering, rather than just doing the instinctive eject, try embracing the J. It's going to involve praying a lot, asking questions like, God, what are you doing in this situation? You guys have probably heard that there's no such thing as a bad question. There actually are bad questions when it comes to prayer. One of them is, God, why aren't you doing anything? It's a bad question because it's operating on a false premise. The Bible tells us God's always working in our situations in life. If we come and say, God, why aren't you doing anything? We're, We're coming and saying, God, why are you a liar? A better question is, God, what are you doing? And why can't I see it? If we ask that prayer over and over, God, what are you doing? Why can't I see it? How are you trying to work through the things that I'm facing? Those are the types of prayers that God loves to hear, that he loves to come alongside us and walk with us through. So that's step one, embrace the J. Step two is embrace hope in the J. Embrace hope in the J. See, one of the great things about J-curves that God brings us into 
is that in God's stories, death always leads to resurrection. Now, we don't get to choose when the resurrections come. It might take years. It might happen in eternity rather than in this lifetime. And we don't get to choose what form the resurrections take. Sometimes it could be our circumstances improving. You know, my job's been horrible, and then all of a sudden my dream job comes along and I get it, and there's a resurrection. Circumstances changed. It might be that our relationship with God deepens, that my job's been terrible and my job stays terrible, but I just have this closeness with God in the midst of it that I never had before. It might be that our character is strengthened, that we learn patience and forgiveness through the things that we're suffering. It might take another form. But like with Jesus, in God's stories, resurrection always follows death. So when you feel trial and suffering coming on, don't just face it stoically, get that stiff upper lip and deal with it. Instead, face it with hope. Yes, it's going to be hard for a season, but resurrection is coming. You know, I think maybe you can think of it like a treasure hunt. Every day, waking up with this question of like, God, show me where you're at work in the midst of this difficult situation today. Give me eyes to see even the the tiniest things that you're doing. It'll turn the time of suffering into a time of surprise and excitement. It won't make the suffering disappear, but it'll give you hope in the midst of it that God really is at work. So embrace hope in the J. And then third, embrace Jesus in the J. You know, it's fascinating. As you look at the life of Jesus, God looked at the suffering and the brokenness of humanity and the earth. And he could have just gone and snapped his fingers and made it all better. And he didn't. Instead, his solution was to come and enter into that mess himself. Think about that. God doesn't fix our pain and suffering by snapping his fingers and making it go away. He fixes it by sharing in it himself. This might be the greatest gift of suffering, that when life is hard, when we come to the end of ourselves, that's where Jesus meets us. Because that's where he lived during his time on earth, completely dependent on his father. Suffering aligns our hearts with God's heart so that we can come to know him in ways that we never would have known him otherwise. You know, as I look back on some of the difficult times in my life, one of the greatest experiences of suffering is that Jesus was with me in that suffering. You know, I was talking earlier about the adjustment to being a father. That was a hard time for me. I don't know about the rest of you, but, but adjusting to being a parent was hard because I had been wanting a kid for a long time and I was really excited for this kid and I loved him so much. And yet I was also completely exhausted. I was completely overwhelmed by all the extra work that just went into keeping this person alive. And so when I would think about my baby, a lot of times I didn't just feel overwhelmed with love. I felt stressed. I felt anxious. I felt like maybe my life would be better if I could go back to the days before I had children. It would just make things simpler and easier. And I felt, when I felt those things, I felt like there's something wrong with me. You know, why don't I love my child more? Am I broken as a father? And it, you know, it can just spiral out of control, right? Like I'm stressed and now I'm stressed about being stressed. And now I'm more stressed about being stressed. 
and it just got to be a really tough time. But during that time, I was able to turn to God and, and gain this deeper appreciation of what it means for him to love me as a perfect father. I was comforted by the fact that, you know, Jesus doesn't just love me when I'm able to fix myself and be perfect. Me being a mess like this is actually what brought him to the earth to save me. He's not waiting for me to fix myself and get it all sorted out. He loves me right now in the midst of the mess. It gave a new closeness and intimacy to my relationship with him that didn't exist before. And even though it was still a really hard experience of adjusting, I'm thankful that I went through it because Jesus met me in the midst of it. So as you experience these J's in your life this week, look for Jesus in the midst of them. Look for encounters with him. Maybe it won't be him fixing everything right away. It might just be him coming to you in the pain and saying, I've been there. I know what betrayal and suffering feel like because I was betrayed and I suffered. I know what it's like when life is hard and things don't turn out the way you wanted them to. I know what broken relationships feel like because I had people turn against me. I know what death feels like because I died for you. And as you go through this experience, I'm with you. See, the times where we suffer, where our expectations of what life should be like don't match what we're experiencing, they're the times where Jesus is waiting right there to draw us closer to himself. So as you experience these things this week, look for Jesus in them. See, church, Christmas has come and gone. And in the disappointment of its being passed, it can be tempting to feel like we're doing something wrong, like life isn't where it's supposed to be, like we're failing because we're not moving up and to the right as fast as everyone around us. But part of the good news of Christmas is that through Christmas, we have a new way of measuring success. That life isn't found in how much we accomplish. It's not found in how great we are. But our God is with us. He's with us in our failures. He's with us in our hurt. He's with us in the mess. He's with us in our sufferings. And he's actually using these things to put us on the path towards true success and draw us closer to himself. But we're only going to experience that when we Embrace the J, embrace hope in the J, and embrace Jesus in the J. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are God who is with us, that you're not far away, but that you are right here. As we suffer, that you care about us, that you know our pain because you've experienced the pain. But you're also at work to bring healing in a way that we could never dream of, to the pain that we experience right now. So I pray this week as we face suffering and pain and difficult times, that you would give us perspective. You would give us hope and eyes to look for your work in the midst of the pain. And that you would be near to us, helping us draw near to you and experience your love more deeply. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>